welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton, and I'm the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. As you listen today, or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. I truly believe that acting on that thought can and will bring great joy to you, and probably to that person who is coming to mind. I'm very excited to continue this very special to me 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery, and it's almost through. I've only got a few more episodes to put up in the next couple of weeks. And I've interviewed many different people from a lot of different locations and backgrounds of differing kinds on each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next couple of weeks. And whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we have weaknesses in our lives. All of us do. Some of those may be things that we hide from everyone, including ourselves at some point. And we've tried lots and lots of times to try and get rid of them, but we just have not been able to move past them. So I've experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives, that they'll be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. Now, these things, behaviors, could include anything from full-blown drug or alcohol addiction, including prescription medications, or something as dire as cutting or eating disorders, or something as seemingly insignificant or ubiquitous as smartphones, video games, social media. Um, This week we'll be talking to Matt D. about Step 11. Now, it's pretty interesting to me that many of the new ideas and practices I have learned about and that I am striving to put into place in my own daily life really have a lot to do with Step 11. And Matt D. just does a really good job about explaining what Step 11 is and his own experiences with it and how he um, strives to um, obtain and can continue in conscious contact with God, with a higher power. Now, if this is your first episode of this series, or of this podcast as a whole, I really do recommend that you go back and listen to all of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series at some point. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. Just jumping right into step 11, for example, this week, would not be nearly as beneficial if you apply these things into your lives as if it would be if you started out and went through all 12 steps leading or all 10 steps leading up to step 11. So, with that in mind, I think it would be wise yes to you can listen to this episode now, but also go back and listen to steps 1 through 10 in the previous weeks. Step 1 started in January, I believe it was January 6th when it was first released. Now, step 11 reads, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible. 
using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you, while you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan as to how you can implement them. Now kick back, hit the road, work out, do house or yard work, or whatever you do while listening to podcasts, and be ready to learn and gain insights like you may have never considered before. In this episode, there were, once again, some audio difficulties in the recording over the internet, but the message is strong and well worth the few audio glitches here and there. Here we go with Matt D. So I'm sitting here today with Matt D through the magic of of internet. Um, It's really cool to be able to talk to you from across the country. Matt, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself as if you would in a in a twelve step meeting, and then uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure, that's great. Um, so I'm Matt. I'm a recovered addict. So my recovery goes back. Uh, I guess first I should say I'm a member of of All Addicts Anonymous. Um, it's a small fellowship. It's been around for a number of years, um, primarily centralized. Uh, actually in the county that I live in now. The guy who founded it was an early member of Alcoholics Anonymous, was very active, working directly with Bill Wilson on the writing of the mm-hmm. 12 and 12 and editing the big book and AA wow. Comes of Age. Very influential, but of course, anonymous as we all are. I got my recovery um, started about 20 years ago. Actually, I'd connected with him and and a group of recovered addicts that were around him. I had already, prior to that, was trying to get sober in AA with, uh, with no success. Mm. And this is a thing that doesn't use, it, it often happens that people come into a fellowship for a substance addiction and then over time realize they have a problem with a non-substance addiction like sex, for instance, or, you know, whatever, maybe come in and it's booze and then later it's food. Mm. Um, for me, it, it became very clear that if I didn't deal with the sex hang up, I would never get right with the booze mm. and drugs. Um, it just was very obvious to me for a number of reasons. One is this old saying, you know, that cleanliness is next to godliness. And I, I could see if I was going to get sober, I had to be serious about God. And I couldn't get serious unless I was clean. Hmm. And that meant um, my conduct, my behavior, my thoughts, my actions. And so for me, I saw that the, the booze thing was, it was, if I was going to deal with it, I had to really take this whole thing on. Hmm. Um, anyway, the steps, not to, not to go in the weeds, but the steps themselves are, are, are requiring such a thing anyway. When you look at it, it says, turn your will and your life. I mean, it's everything. Right. all these defects of character and all of our affairs. So it's it's really calling for the prescription is for the whole thing, not compartmentalized. But for me, I really had to go in for the whole thing. So I think that's really interesting. And the, the name of the fellowship, All all Addicts Anonymous or All Addictions Anonymous? All Addicts. All Addicts Anonymous. So, so you work with people from every addiction possible, you know? Right. Behind the substance, you know, you can have de- all kinds of depression, anxiety, 
um, you know, hangups with resentment, with lying, with there's so many things that essentially it's a very basic understanding of what the word addiction is, which is it's basically a, a habit a person can't break. Yeah. So, so tell me what your um, first experience in your addictive behaviors, at least the one you remember or whatever that may have launched into the um, addiction and then kind of go along in that story to where rock bottom was and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. I should say that as um, an adjunct and maybe also to add to your or to pick up your question, hopefully I can pull this off, um, is this this other aspect, which was that the reason that booze had become so important to me at a certain point was it was a, an actual relief from the guilt and shame and fear of the things that I had been doing. And that, that in, in essence, was, was what my life was like going back to when I was a little kid. There were things that I had done and were doing, and particularly it was in the sex department, mm. um, that I was ashamed of. And I think that that road for me was a short one. I got in the program when I was in my, I think I was 23 years old. Okay. Uh, I've been in for 20 years now. But I think that um, although booze, the booze and the drugs definitely sped up this point of a, of a crisis, that behind it all along, I was really trying to, to damper down all of the effects of, of my behavior. Um, and pr again, particularly with the sex. So I, I would say that my primary addiction is is alcohol, but I would say that my killing addiction is sex. And that started out, the sex hang up for me started out as far back as I can almost remember. Mm. As a young kid, I used to try to encourage any kind of fantasy and things um, related to sex. And by the end, uh, which was when I was around, again, I was a young man, about 22, 23 years old. By the end, uh, I became in complete horror of the thoughts that might actually enter my mind because I didn't know if I would actually carry them out. Mm. And I had no idea what they might mean, what, what I might do. Mm. So for something that for years I tried to protect and, and keep close and keep in the shadows, of course, so it didn't get leak out to where uh, I would have to change my behavior, something I had protected, you know, by the end, I became in complete horror and fear of it. So I would say, I guess it was around 1999, uh, that, that year I had a, you know, the thing itself, the situation itself was one of being in a kind of psychic anguish and pain. I, I was going about my business. I was doing, you know, a regular job and stuff, but life I couldn't, I wasn't into a, a thing of suicide at that point, but I, I was just totally coming apart and I mm. didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. And um, I had been squeezed, you know, hard enough and fortunately painted somewhat into a corner where mm. there's this thing where it's like, if you're going to go, it's inevitable. It's inescapable. Like if you're going to go forward, something has to die. Mm. And it's like either it's going to be yourself or it's going to be your old way of living. Hmm. And essentially that was what happened to me. Hmm. 
And what was that kind of wake up call at that age? You know, but what what kind of facilitated that? I've got to change. Something's got to die here. There were basic external things that were happening at the time that were they weren't in themselves very impactful to me. But I again, I feel like a lot of this is is what was going on behind the scenes. I just I couldn't go anywhere. Um, like a free man. Everywhere I went, I was looking around. I, I, you know, was always consumed or obsessed with the idea of of sex and and fantasy and lust. I had lived so much in a in a false world that I couldn't I couldn't function very well in the real world. Hmm. Again, I was, you know, doing my best and I was working and stuff, but I was out of my mind. Um, one thing that I justified in my own life, and I have heard so many other people justify, is um, you're just a guy. That's what all guys do. What's your now? What, what what is your experience with that? And what is what is your understanding with that? You're just a you're just a guy, and all guys, you know, are obsessed with sex in one way or another. Well, I think I, I think the thing about that is that that's sex is is a sacred act all sacred acts if you violate them or or twist them for your own selfish use or abuse them there is a high penalty and the penalty is your sanity mm. and that's what happened to me i went totally out of my mind um if it was a booze problem which it, which there was a booze problem but if it, if my central main killing addiction was a booze problem. I could substantiate these things by saying, you know, I had been into rehabs and and smashed up cars and done this and done that. And I have my fair share of those things that I could (laughs) say. Uh, And I could give some, some details about the sex thing, but mostly it's, it's somewhat of a, of like an inward, you know, psychic suffering that comes in an insanity. Um, just being completely out of your mind. Mm. And it's hard to substantiate a, a sex addiction problem in the same terms as people understand addiction. Mm. But let me tell you, the suffering is, is in many regards um, worse. Uh, I think that's why I had this kind of dual addiction thing going where I needed the booze as a, as a crutch, I'd say, mm. to deal with the sex thing. So as you came to that realization as you mentioned earlier that something had to die either myself or my old self my old way of being how did you decide that going into a you know I'm assuming a 12-step meeting at that point or some sort of program therapy um, how did you decide to start doing that so at the time I um, I was actually living in um, in Ohio not very far it was actually a lot of the early groups out there. There were some right. old timers going to meetings with people who went to meetings with, you know, like Dr. Bob and the early AA members and stuff. And uh, that was a kind of a neat experience. Yeah. So what made you decide to start attending a 12 step group at that point when you had to make the decision, something's got to change here. Yeah. I'd say that um, what preceded uh, this experience was um, I had gone to, as a kid, I was in so much trouble. I had actually been removed from my home. Oh. That's a nice way of saying I'd been kicked out. 
Uh, I ended up in a, in a private boarding school um, in upstate New York. Sounds a lot nicer than it was. It was more like a 12-step boot camp. And you did what they said. And uh, a lot of times, if you did something that was out of line, all of your, uh, again, this is like a boot camp. They, they literally would put you up in front of everybody and they would, they would take your inventory for you. Oh. They'd give you an opportunity to take it for yourself too if you weren't too sore or, or stunned to mm. just stand there, you know. Um, but it was part of the process was, was there was inventory work and, and there was prayer and there was devotion and there was all kinds of stuff that was waking me up in certain ways. Um, but I hadn't fundamentally uh, at the place of where, you, where your will is turning, turning it over to God uh, I hadn't really made that decision. I had had received a lot of the benefits from things, activities that that are twelve step activities, but I hadn't really made a decision. So I had had experience of of the twelve steps, knew about them, been to meetings and all of that mm. prior to all of this. Mm. Um, which, if it does anything, it makes the deviation from the the twelve step way of life um, makes you even more aware of it. All right. You had gone through these boot camps, you've gone through basically 12-step programs before, but it didn't take. Why, why do you think that the whole uh, turning your life and your will over to the care of God didn't take at that time? I would say it's because it's the least cheap possible thing that can happen to a human person. You know, I mean, what it takes to actually get to the point where you would turn your will and life over. Uh, in most cases, it, it usually involves... Um, you know, near death. Hmm. I've heard it explained like in the army, you know, you go in and you do what they tell you to do. Like it, you literally are completely under somebody else's care. There isn't a little bit of yourself that's hmm. left to get to that point. You literally need the hell beaten out of you or almost being at the point of, of complete death or some kind of a, a psychic state of death where you're, you know, so out of your mind, you're coming apart. To to have that happen for somebody that is still, you know, I went through those experiences as as a teenager, you know, and a, a teenager's ability to to conceive of things like death are they're just they're never farther than when you're about 15 or 16 years old. I mean, this is why kids ride their bicycles off roofs and do all kinds of crazy right. stuff because it's never going to happen to them, or you know. Mm -hmm. The, the ego thing is is never more um, in well-functioning order than when you're in your late teens. And God seems almost never further away. Fortunately, I think one of the things that, that played in my case is I was somewhat of a spoiled brat. And I think that when I finally was on my own, which is in my you know early 20s, when I was suffering, when things were difficult, I had nobody else to blame and I wasn't living at, you know, mommy and daddy weren't you know, I wasn't in their house anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it was on my own. If I didn't get my crap together, it, it was going to affect me and nobody else. Nobody else is going to clean up my messes for me. Mm. And I think that the, all these things came down at the point where it pressed in on me this opening that would be that would allow for the idea of turning my will and life over to God. Also, the other thing is is that when we turn our will and our life over to God, this is my opinion. Your, your will is this weak thing. It isn't this shiny, beautiful, you know, Cadillac. This thing is, is half broken, lets you down, deceives you all the time. And your life 
you know, at that point, I mean, what you're handing over is prior to that, I thought, you know, my will and my life were of the highest regard. You know, it took a lot of beats, beatings from life to get to the truth, to really see things about myself. Hmm. And when you do that, it becomes, I mean, it's almost by reflex that you want to turn your will and life over to God because you're like, holy cow, I, I, I'm going to continue to ruin it on my own. Hmm. In my own experience and in so many others' experience that I've heard, you know, our will, and I'm going to com- combine this with the, the phrase willpower, even though it's slightly different, but it's, it's kind of, this, it comes from the same place. I, as well as many people have tried to conquer whatever weakness it is, whatever addiction, whatever it is with willpower, you know, sick them, will go get it. You, <laughs> I can do anything that I set my mind to, you know, that whole pride, the whole ego thing of, I got myself in this mess. I have to get myself out of it. Did you, did you battle that same type of those same type of emotions and actions actually? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's this thing of, I, I look at it like this. It's like my, my whole life ever, ever since I was a little kid, there's a, a, st- a story I like to tell sometimes there was a, an event. I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, probably five years old or something. I remember being in a store, we were on vacation and I, there was a, a raft that I wanted for this, you know, we were at the beach and um, there's a particular one I wanted. I think this was between my mother and myself, but I was pushing for this particular raft and she started to say, you know, we can't get that one. It's too expensive, but we can get you this one over here. And I remember, you know, you're weeping, crying, doing the whole number. Mm-hmm. And she said, right, we won't get you that one, but we'll get you this one, which was a little bit nicer, but not like the one that I was trying to, you know, hoping to get. I did the whole routine all over again. And she said, okay, fine we'll get you this one that you wanted. And at that moment, I realized there was an actual nicer one than that. Uh-huh. I tried my hand again. Mm-hmm. She said, well, fine. And grabbed my, my arm and ripped me out of the store. And I remember being in the back seat. This was back before, you know, seatbelts were a big right. thing and all that. But being in the back of this, of this vehicle and just watching the store getting smaller and smaller as we're driving away. And I remember thinking to myself very clearly, I can never let that happen again. Mm. Like I got to learn how to play my cards better. You know, I got to really learn how to, to get the things that I want and not overplay my hand. You know, Mm. my whole life, I started to develop this thing of, of learning how to uh, not get caught in lies, how to get the things that I want, um, how to get people to like me. It's all these things became somewhat of, a, of my personality it was the surface person. And I had my own drive, my own, my own desires, my own, really, it's, it's what the program talks about, the selfish self-centeredness mm-hmm. being the, the, the real root of the problem. That stuff is something that's developed over time. And you work on, I worked on with all my might. That's another reason why you don't want to give it over because you spent your whole life trying to develop it to be right. of greatest efficiency. And um, that's how, essentially, that's how I tried to live. And I relied on my own personality to get me through jams, to get me through anything that was difficult. Mm-hmm. If I had a class, you know, school, 
uh, you know, assignments that were difficult, well, I would just act like a clown or whatever. I would figure some way to get through life based on my own so-called egotistical skills. And the, the, <laughs> the end of the story is that, that that is no way to live. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't get you what you ultimately want, which you don't find out until you learn to surrender your will in life. So what does that mean to surrender your will in life? What does that mean to you? I think it means two things, essentially. I think it means an event, like literally an event, which I had. And, and I had this in Ohio when I first was getting onto the program. What happened to me was uh, I had connected with All Addicts Anonymous, with AAA. I talked to um, some of the guys about the sex hang-up I had. Uh, one guy had a, at that point had a sex recovery for almost 30 years. Mm early sex recovery precedes SA by like 10 years because some of these SA sexaholic anonymous type recoveries were happening in AAA back in the sixties. And there was another guy at about 10 years who who ended up becoming my sponsor. Anyway, um, I connected with them. I talked to them about what my, my main hang up was. They had, you know, they said that, a sex recovery was possible, that sanity in this department was possible. I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, to use prayer, this is the topic of today's thing, but to use the 11th step, um, particularly repetitive prayer in a time of temptation. Mm. The big book makes reference to, you know, saying many times, thy will not mine be done, or it says, don't be shy on the subject of prayer. There are people who are using it continuously. This mm-hmm. is the idea was they said, when you're in temptation, just keep um, calling on God's name until the temptation goes away. They also said, if, if you're going to have a slip, if you're going to look at pornography or masturbate or whatever, make, before you do, just make a commitment that you'll call before you, before you do it. And I start, I made that commitment. They said, call once a week. So I, I made that commitment. And I was a little concerned because my whole life, I had never not given into temptation. Mm. I had no idea what the hell that was going to be like. Mm. And so it was like a, a week later after visiting these, these people in upstate New York from AAA, and I came back, I'm in Ohio. I had been okay. And then, uh, but I could feel like like all, if if I can speak for all sex addicts out there, uh, there's this, you almost feel like a, a, a pressure building or a cloud of some kind of, of temptation. Mm-hmm. And it it's like inescapable. You're not going to just wish it away. It's it's building and building. And, and here I was, I came home from work. I'm walking uh, through the hallway. There's parked in the back. You go through a hallway to get to the stairs where it led to my apartment. And there was a shared washer and dryer that was in the, in the hallway. This is a, a pretty, you know, simple story that, that just, it's not very glamorous at all. And mm. with, with stories of surrender, I've read some beautiful surrender stories, you know, but here I am, I'm walking in and this, and the thought comes in my mind to look inside the washing machine. And the next thought was, well, maybe the the gal that lives upstairs might have her things in there. And um, then the thought came, well, you know, you can't live your whole life where you don't open up washing machines because you're afraid of temptations. 
And then the next thought was, well, but I don't even need to do my laundry. And then there I was, I sat in that hallway for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. intermittently arguing and talking with myself or, or who knows what. When you're talking to temptations, you have no idea what you may be talking to right. on the other end of that thing. In the meantime, though, I had remembered what they said about, about trying to pray repetitively. So intermittently in between these discussions, uh, I would I would pray. I happen to be a Christian, so I was saying the form of prayer I was saying was the was Jesus prayer, which is Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me. And so I'm saying it over and over and over again, and then the arguments start to come back in and I drop the prayer. And finally, after about forty-five minutes of standing in this hallway, not moving, I finally uh took that first step towards my apartment and I actually made it through. That was my first temptation that I did not give into. And it was because I kept calling on God's name for help. Just like if someone was to fall through the ice and they knew someone was nearby, they would call on their name for their lives, you know. And even though it was intermittent and somewhat half-hearted at times, it was enough to get me through that temptation. And Essentially, what that did for me was it allowed me to to realize that, uh, first of all, the immense and and absolute power of temptation, which is, it would be crushing in the frightening department if it weren't for the fact that I didn't find out the prayer was more powerful than that was. Mm. And I came through that with an experience of surrender. So it was surrender happens in an experience, in, in an event. Uh, the other, what that did for me too was, is like being given a gift. I mean, who in their right mind would want to give up a gift of that magnitude? I mean, I could never in my life not, you know, do that on my own. It could never be possible. And now this is this thing given to me and I didn't want to lose it. So I would say that was an actual event and an experience of surrender. Um, then I would also say that surrender is something that is uh, Tebow, this is early, you know, um, psychiatrist that was helpful with the formulation of AA, he used to say that it was a, a disciplinary experience. It's something that you try to do on a regular basis. You know, I wake up in the morning and I say a third step prayer. Um, and then my intention is, is to try to live that way, right? This, this often elicits these, these events. It isn't necessarily the event in itself. I think to have a surrender, you almost always have to, it has to almost always be done in the teeth of adversity. Hmm. Like, I think a lot of people come in, they're like, oh, I'll turn my one life over to God. And then all of a sudden, this major temptation comes along. That's when you find out where the hell you are in relationship to the third step. You, you don't know until then. I like how you put it that way. A real surrender, a real turning of one's life and will over to God happens in the teeth of adversity. You know, we can say it all we want in smooth waters or whatever it may be. But when those waters are boiling and there there seems to be no hope, you know, like you mentioned, you're standing there in the hall for 45 minutes and the temp, the cloud is there and it's it's not going away. That surrender and being able to walk out of that is where the power comes from. The reality of it comes from. 
So is there anything else in your personal story that you feel is appropriate or necessary to share right now before we jump into what we're going to be talking about a little bit in step 11? I don't know how important it is in the way of giving a, you know, more detail to what we've already said. I was out of my mind with sex in all forms, including, you know, fornication and masturbation and pornography. Mm -hmm. And mostly I was dealing with it. Um, By then it had been with drinking um, to try to deal with, with life and to deal with my actions. There was an event, I, I, I would say definitely as a, as a young person, where I, I realized I was over my head for sure. Um, and I had the opportunity, I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, I had the opportunity to unburden myself. At that time, I grew up in, my mother's Catholic, and I, I grew up in a setting where I had, had been brought mostly by duress to, to the confessional, uh-huh. which I, you know, quote unquote, had to do or needed to do. And I... I didn't come up for it. I didn't, I didn't admit the things that I had done. And, uh, I don't think it was any, any mistake that shortly thereafter, um, I got totally screwed up with, with drugs and with, with booze, Hmm. you know, mostly talking about the sex thing, but, uh, the drugs, there was a period of my life where, where literally I had forgotten an entire month of my life. Um, from taking certain certain drugs during high school, and, and you had this kind of come on when you were ten or eleven, when you know the drugs and alcohol kind of came on and got really into your life. I started to get into into drugs. I would say I was probably thirteen or so. Um, by the time I was fifteen years old, I was I was totally screwed mm-hmm. up. I was high all the time. I was just totally screwed up. Very self-destructive behaviors of, of from all different angles, right? I, I think there's this thing I've heard. I've heard this, and I believe it. Is, is there's a, an initiatic age for persons in all cultures? You know, it, you know, there's the bar mitzvah, and there's confirmation. There's even American Indians. There's this whole thing that basically, by the time you're about twelve years old. That if you don't have a spiritual experience of some kind, you're destined or you're you're hungry as a as a human person for for this kind of experience. And our culture in our day and age, it's, it's like people are are the idea of such things are so foreign. Um, maybe even people are hostile to the idea. You yeah. know. To, to come up through that without having that kind of experience, you, you recreate it. You look for your own, get it. Everybody's, you know, I won't say everybody, but a majority of persons are, are thirsty and hungry for it. And so we as people then, if we don't have that spiritual awakening experience, initiation into something greater than ourselves, we then seek it in something... Yeah that we assume is greater than ourselves, whether it be drugs or booze or sex or whatever it may be. Well, very good. So let's, unless there's anything else you want to hit on there in your own experience and and lessons learned, let's kind of move into step 11. Tell me, well, first, tell me what, 
what is step 11? How does it read? And then tell me a little bit about why it's important to you and your experience in working your step 11. So the step itself reads, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Yeah, so I had been just, you know, in thinking about this uh, podcast earlier, just jotted down some notes and stuff just to try to gather some things together. Uh, so I was, one of the things, um, I'm, as I've been doing so far, is jumping around a lot. So thanks for trying to keep me focused. Hey, we're good. Uh, <laughs> that's an issue, not just in conversation, but also in conversation with God and talk about prayer time, you know. There was uh, that. <laughs> just I uh, just in thinking about the step and what it means, the the first aspect of it is is seeking. You know, I don't. As we've kind of talked about already, I think the whole idea of doing things like turning your will and life over to God, um, or to even seek out something like conscious contact, is a very not just foreign, but difficult thing for anyone unless they've had these experiences. So this, the idea of the 11th step in itself is not without the grounds of all that happens to a person till they get to this point. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, I mean, essentially, this is the, the sole action of God that was the, the sunburst that gave birth to this whole like fellowship movement. You know, here is this broken down businessman who who goes, you know, is completely at the point of a wet brain or being in an asylum for the rest of his life, who tried by every means possible, and this is not a not an unintelligent person or or a person without a lot of will, tried everything he possibly could to deal with his own alcohol problem and came to complete and total you know, desperation before he had an experience in Towns Hospital that not just, didn't just revolutionize his life and stop, you know, and, and produce the experience of, of sobriety, but it, it did the same for millions of people and all these fellowships and everything is an outgrowth of that actual experience. So I would say in, in light of, of all the 12 steps, this thing of conscious contact is, is at the very heart of it. Mm. It's the very thing that gave birth to to the experience that, that caused him to have sobriety. And it, all these movements, everything is coming off of conscious contact. It's an amazing thing. Hmm. You know, so many, so many great movements, so many, well, pretty much a lot of things came from somebody questioning and saying, hmm, God, if there is a God, what do I need to do here? Yeah. Show me give me greater light and understanding, you know? Yeah. And the beginning of that spiritual experience is actually desolation. I mean, it is, is to be desperate. That's the beginning of it, you know, and you don't think about it, but uh, that, that's a, a big, you know, we call it what hitting bottom or they used to call it ego deflation at depth, you know, but to actually get to the point where y you as an ego are completely and thoroughly deflated um, that's not a good feeling necessarily, but it, it's the it's the doorway in which a, a experience of conscious contact occurs, you know. 
if your if your ego is completely intact and this kind of kind of thing, you're, you're barred from this kind of an experience. Yeah. So what what does your prayer and meditation look like on a daily basis? You know, how does that? Do you have a routine or is it more ongoing? Tell me about that. Yeah. So as we stated already, I would say that I'm not any golden exemplar or something of of uh, you know the practice of the eleven step. It's definitely something I do every day and have done every day of my life since I got into the program. There's many different things I've done over the years. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. You, it's good to switch things up from time to time. Mm. Um, and then there's other aspects of it that I think. Or it's like brushing your teeth or something. It's like something that you, you want to do every day, the mm-hmm. same way, same time, same place, you know, if you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things um, that I've done over the years, um, again, I, I've, I've learned almost all of this from, you know, the AAA group that I got started in and from its, its founder who, you know, he was very active and prayer time and working with conscious contact it's this whole life um, mm. and teaching others how to do it. Um, that was his whole, whole life. You know, that's another important thing that, you know, conscious contact, the means in which you are to receive such an experience, uh, you want to make sure that they're valid. Mm. You know, if you were to try to do it through some means that, are are not legit you can do yourself a lot of harm and again yeah. that brings us back to our addictions i mean that's the idea of what in sex food booze drugs all these things in themselves are actual instruments for receiving conscious contact with god there's spiritual awakening that's mm. there it's just they're completely invalid mm. i don't want to say they're invalid i mean to say that they're that they're they're cheats Mm. like counterfeits or something yeah well it, there's this this scripture reference to um you know getting into the the sheepfold the pasture there's a doorway if you jump the fence you're a thief mm. and addicts in this regard are thieves and that's what i was doing forever i was stealing these experiences you know of of ecstasies of ecstatic experience i was stealing them they were legitimate experiences, but they were done through means that were very dangerous cheats. Yeah, I was going to say something too about this idea about Bill Wilson and his and his experience. That one of the things that they had found out through through his experience was that um, it was spiritual awakening and conscious contact which produced sobriety. It, it, from there forward, they were not solely interested in sobriety which is total common sense like hey let's let's put sobriety forward they didn't they put conscious contact forward they put that as the heart of their program as the actual aim of the of the program itself and sobriety was just a byproduct you know Hmm. it's an interesting thing it is and i think that's does that harken back a little bit to the root, the Oxford group roots? Because that the Oxford group, yes, they, they were striving for contact for living, you know, first century post Christ church manner is what my understanding of it is. And having that contact, does that, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
I would say absolutely. I mean, this their their whole movement basically gave us a majority of the steps. According to Wilson, I believe he said something like, you know, step two to to twelve essentially came. But I think that it's like we we're talking about earlier. The the whole idea of the first step. This it's like an, an initiation to really go through that door. Like you can't that camel won't fit through that eye. Mm. You know, you really got to leave the old life behind and the kind of suffering that happens for, for a, a, an addict. It's very different than it is in just a standard religious devotional fellowship or community um, to come in broken in that way. It's just a whole different thing. Um, And I think it's meant everything for us in in the fellowships that people are are coming in as actual addicts. You know, in my days, I've been around a lot of stuff. I've seen people who have tried to work with the 12 steps without some real clear defining thing that they were really Mm -hmm. powerless over. And it, by all means, it makes, you know, better people. Mm -hmm. But there's something completely different about coming to a point where like, I cannot stop myself from doing this thing. Mm. I'm desperate. I need help. Mm. And the kind of of help that you receive coming through that tends to be, you know, one that keeps your life going a day at a time. Mm. So tell me a little bit about uh, what personal benefits you see on a regular basis, if not daily for exercising your step 11 by making that conscious contact with God. And I love this phrase, this, this part of the, the phrase here, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I mean, so often in prayer, I, in, in my history of life has been, have been more like, help me, help me, help me this, help me that, help me this. And, and in this step, we're talking about only asking for what his will is and the power to carry that out. So tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, you know, earlier today before this podcast, just um, these are the things that, and we talked about it already, that that an addict, I would say the thing that the addict doesn't have is the power to carry it out. I mean, forever you're saying to yourself, you know, if if only I could stop doing this or if I'll stop doing that. It's almost like an egotistical um, New Year's resolution or something. You know, I'm going to do this. And you see the thing that you lack is actually power. You know, I mean, there's references to it. The powerless in the beginning. I guess the, the word power makes it into the steps three times. You know, the first is you're powerless. The power greater than yourself, which is, you know, the, the reflex to that powerlessness, you know. But mm-hmm. now it's, it's the power to carry it out. And I would say that this idea that getting the, the power to carry it out doesn't come until now because otherwise you would be, if you had the power to carry out what you wanted, man, life would be a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen people with um, inherit money, you know, and if you don't know how to use that properly, you can make one hell of a mess with a lot of money. You can really do yourself and a lot of people harm. You know, uh, I think of it that in that term, in those terms. Man, that's so. This is such a. As I look at it, I'm like, why didn't I see this 
six or seven years ago when I was first coming through this, this awakening in my own life, my own powerlessness, but I never made the connection of for the power to carry it out juxtaposed against my own powerlessness over my addiction, whatever that is, you know, or my own powerlessness of doing something of value in life without really messing it up. That's such a power, powerful <laughs> juxtaposition to, yeah. to, to see and, and have it click in my mind. Really cool. Thank you for helping facilitate that. Yeah. To finally get to the place where your, your whole life is a concern of what does God want me to do? What does he want me to be? You know, it makes, it only makes sense at that point that that's the place to introduce power. If it precedes that, you can really make a hell of a mess. Yeah. And it's the power to carry that out. And that is his will. It's not my will. Yep. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Very, very cool. All right. So how do you, well, first of all, how do you learn what God's will is for you in your life? How, how is that made manifest to you in your own praying in your own exercising of step 11? You know, I've over the years developed a whole different relationship to this subject. I think in the beginning, it seemed like God's will, this idea of his will was, was something that was like C.S. Lewis calls a tapioca in the sky, you know, just Mm -hmm. this thing that, you know, and everything that happened, oh, well, it must be God's will. And, Mm -hmm. uh, my relationship to it now is much more, um, juvenile, I would say. It's like, I think essentially there are basic virtues in which we live by. And when it comes to things about what we are to do, now the big book gives a whole description of this, like, you know, relating to your life. You know, it says there's certain prayers that are, or suggestions on, on how to relate to your, your day and your life. Your day is a a microcosm of your life you know, pray for that, um, any troubles that, that arise, that God will help you and particularly to protect you from self will. You know, there's some, there's a a whole series of things there, but, um, essentially this, this is, again, it's a kind of a simple view, but the way I see it is there are basic virtues you practice and live by. Um, the, the Oxford group had a, the four absolutes, which AA adopted in the beginning and had uh, at a certain point, Wilson said that he built them into the sixth step, sixth and seventh step. But basically, those are very root, basic, fundamental, moral, ethical virtues. And you try to live by them regularly. They're the mother of the steps. I mean, this this idea that they're OAA oh, threw them out, they're no value or something. They're the mother of the steps. They gave birth to the steps themselves. They were the original program mm. that the original people had. They didn't have the 12 steps when they wrote the big book. They were written as part of the book, you know? Right. So right. these first hundred people recovered off those virtues. You know, those are literally attributes of God himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you try to live by them. Know what they are. Know where you fall short. Ask God to help you to live by them and make a decision as best you're able to carry them out in your daily affairs. Um, when it comes to things where you're really supposedly you're kind of scratching your head and what's God's will? Do I turn right? Do I turn left? Um, for the most part, uh, I, 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 again, I, I kind of have this simple view that you make the best common sense decision you can. 
And if you're wrong, which you very well may be, God will make it clear to you and give you the opportunity to make it right. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a, a major skull cracker to deal with the third step in this way, knowledge of God's will for you. I just don't think so. Mm. I think our bigger problem is the power to carry it out. Yeah. Because how many things do I know today that I should be doing or should have done and I didn't? Mm. I think it's the second part that's the bigger problem. And we sit around scratching our heads of, oh, I want to know what God's will is or whatever. I don't think that one's the trouble. So, so that whole concept that you just alluded to there, doing the things that we know or believe we know, is kind of the wellspring of this whole project for me. A few years ago, I had the awakening, I guess, that if I know something and if I don't do anything about it, it doesn't do me or anybody else any good. So I need to act on that and make something happen because then it has the potential to do me and others around me some good. And there's so many things like you just mentioned, how many times in my life have I went, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to just put that on the bookshelf here and never look at it again. <laughs> what a waste. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the power to carry it out, the part of the problem is, is that the power, we have these, you know, vampires, if you will, that are just sucking the strength out of us. There's a, this, the, the word virtue itself means strength. You know, where Christ is there, Dr. Bob used to like this quote, but you know, Christ is there and he says, I felt virtue depart from me when a woman touched his garment. You know, it's strength. I feel strength depart from me. And I think that that's what we're up against are all these things that are sucking our blood, as you will, in the strength department. Do I spend too much time on my stupid iPhone? You know, <laughs> am I eating things that I shouldn't be eating? Am I, are my sleeping habits right? I mean, when you're dealing with conscious contact, you're, deal, you're also dealing with the body. You're dealing with your mind, you're dealing with your heart, and those things are constantly, um, you're up against compromising those faculties based on ways that, you know, we're abusing them. There's ways you abuse your body by your diet, your sleep habits, you know. If you want to go into prayer time, this is, I think, why a lot of people have a hard time with prayer time in the beginning, uh, actually sitting down and doing it. Is because, my God, they've been invaded with all kinds of negative thoughts for years on end without any breaks on them. All kinds of, you know, things they've been putting into their body, chemicals and <laughs> all kinds of crazy foods and habits and stuff. And then you go to sit down and you're, you're jumping out of your skin, you're out of your mind, you know. I think the idea of, of actually seeking prayer, meditation, conscious contact, these things that require uh, us to take a, a broader look at our at ourselves, our, our own bodies. Hmm. What kinds do you let into your mind? What kind of thoughts are you letting in? What kind of emotions are you allowing yourself to indulge in? All these things have, have an effect on us. You know, I... I think this next question that just came to mind may be one of those you jump, I'm jumping the fence and cheating on this, you know, I'm a thief here, but I think a lot of people who will listen to this series and these podcasts will hear this and be like, you know what? I'm not ready to go through all those first 10 steps here. I'm not ready to do an inventory or confession or turn my life and my will over to God. 
but I really want to get involved in this prayer and meditation and, and, and jump in here. But like you mentioned, like I've experienced and like so many people experience, we sit down and we try and quiet ourselves and we're just jumping out of our skins. Mm-hmm. How do you quiet your own mind and spirit and heart as you get into prayer and meditation routines? I think if you, if you look at the steps, it's it's kind of amazing that every time there is some form of some prescription for prayer, it always preceded there's inventory. Mm. You know, the six and seven step. I mean, six step is a prayer, you know. It, it comes after an inventory. You know, the 10 step inventory. You know, there's this, this thing that, you know, the actual scriptures is, watch and pray the reason that you are to watch is that you know what to pray for but i think that and i found this for myself like when this is one of the reasons why uh i find myself out of the necessary act of the 11th step is that i start to get full of myself i start to lose sight of where i need help and when i return to inventory um it just it allows me to be able to pray in a way that I couldn't without it. You know, so often when I hear that phrase, watch and pray, I've often in the past thought, all I'm doing is keeping an eye out for, well, when that's uttered, Jesus is telling yeah. his disciples, hey, watch and pray while I go off here in the garden. Okay, yeah. I'm going to watch, make sure nobody comes in and bugs you. But I don't think that's what that means. It's stay yeah. alert to what is actually yeah. happening in your own life so that you can then know what to pray about. Like what you said, it's awesome. That's yeah, very enlightening. Well, good. So what else, is there anything else about step 11 that you feel is important to share with me and with those who will um, listen to this? Yeah, I should have, and I, I missed it earlier, but I should say something on the practical part of it. Yeah. You know, like I would say, you know, for myself, it's become a, a regular thing that I'm, I do every day that, there's some actual aids to it that I found really helpful. Again, these, these weren't my ideas. These are just part of you know, working with a lot of people who took the 11 steps seriously and learning from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally to have a, a place in your house, a table, maybe some artwork that is of value to you, um, a chair, a comfortable chair, that this is where you're going to literally seek conscious contact with God, you know, Mm. there are, uh, I think, especially for the newcomer, it's important to have a, a set of prayers, like this idea that you're going to go in and just talk or something. Um, now I know this is, this is my view. It's not everybody's view. Some, you know, again, there's this idea of being quiet and listening that was very, that would have been very difficult for me as a, Mm. as a person who had abused my mind the way I did on fantasy and, and sexual thoughts and and other thoughts of resentment and all this other stuff. For me to sit down, it would have been a very difficult task in a way. I I literally need something like to read the Psalms and to, to Mm. read the steps. Steps are a very good thing to use as prayer and meditation. You can literally read the step and what does this mean? What is this asking? You know, and then actually pray for it. Mm. But to have something like that concrete to do is important. I've developed 
something like oh, it's an 11-step binder. You know, I've got a whole series of prayers. My wife actually helped put it together for me, mm-hmm. but it's a whole whole series of prayers that mean a lot to me. And it's something that I, I have as a binder. You know, I literally, I got all the prayers are printed out and they're inside their sleeves and I, I flip through it and I go in order. And that that's my own personal set of prayers that I use in my own 11-step time. Huh. And you've got that binder set up on this table that you may have set up in, in a special place. So you just kind of right over here, <laughs> go through it every day as you, as you do your, that's really cool. And it's just something that you and your wife have learned over through experience. Hey, this is something that works for me and this is how I'm going to do it. Huh? Yeah. There's a whole bunch. I, you know, there was a whole bunch of people in my home group. They did, you know, they would do the same thing, you know, mm. they pull all their, you know, favorite prayers together. And, um, I've got them actually pictures of them on my phone. So if I'm away or if there's, you know, I can access them and go through them. Super cool. I like that uh, procedural way of facilitating that conscious contact with, with God. I like that. So how in your life now, do you work your, and we're going to jump on this. Do you work mm-hmm. step 12, which is giving back basically. How, how do you go about doing that now so that this whole process doesn't get stuck right here in your head and it's actually shared with others? I, I have to like um, go not in the weeds altogether, but uh, there's this account. I feel like I got to tell you about there's um there was a, uh, he was not part of any denomination at all, but there's a, a Hindu who had been converted to Christianity. His name was um, Sadhu Sundar Singh. And uh, there's this account, I have to, please forgive me, but there's <laughs> this account that makes me think of this thing of the, of the 11th step and the 12th step. Okay. Um, he was in the, in the Himalayan mountains. There's an account of it, a book about him. Okay. And he was with a guide. And he's they're they're walking together, and the snowstorm starts to happen. The snow is falling, and as they're walking along, they're in dire need to get back to the village, or they're going to die if they don't. And along the way, Sadhu's Sundar Singh looks over the edge of the cliff, and he sees a, a man lying down um, on an edge, mm-hmm. and he says to the guide, "Look, I think I see him moving." And the guide said, "Well, it doesn't matter." Because if we don't get back, we're all going to die. And he said, look, I, as long as there's life in him, we've got to help him. And the guide said, you help him, but I'm going to live and I'm going. Hmm. So the, guy, the guide takes off. He, Sundar Singh goes down, gets the man, puts him over his shoulder as a blanket, puts him over both of them, and they start walking. And the snow is coming down and it's, the storm is, is accumulating snow and it's just awful. And right at the crest of the, of the morning, the sun starts to break out and he sees in front of him the, the, the village. He finally makes it to the town. Mm-hmm. And right on the edge of the town is the guide frozen dead. Mm. And it, it is like he realized that it was literally the exertion and the heat that was produced off of helping this man that kept them both alive. You know. Mm-hmm. It's not your own, you don't produce your own heat, you know, you don't, it doesn't come from yourself. 
it is made in the process of helping others. And, huh. and that's the very thing that, that allowed him to live. And I think, my God, isn't that the 12th step? You know, it's exactly what it is. And heat itself is the conscious contact part. You know, it's this thing you get from God and you can't get from any other, other source. And you hmm. come in most close contact with it when, when there's people in need. And you can be some kind of a, not the source, of course not, but some kind of a, of a vessel for it, you know? Mm. Um, personally, how do I do it? As my, my phone is available, I've got a whole bunch of sponsees. I'm very active in literature work and websites and all kinds of stuff, you know, just like uh, Bill is, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. really active with all those kinds of things. And also I see the 12th step as, as not, uh, assigned solely to just um, because I'm in a in a fellowship for with addicts of all kinds. I don't see it just assigned to an alcoholic or something. It's to me, it's my family members. It's those I work with. It's the lady at the counter when I'm getting rung up. You know, the idea of carrying this message to others is is um, I, I think it, it means in, in all my affairs and to all people. How how does working these steps, including step twelve that we, that you just talked about, how does that bring peace into your life? Where possibly, like you mentioned, you're coming out of your own skin before and just a mess. Yeah, again, I think that ultimately the thing that I was looking for all along was was union with God. The thing that conscious contact does is it produces joy, and joy doesn't happen in haphazard. You know, there are things you have to do that produce it. Now it comes sometimes, you know, you have different experiences that seem almost accidental or something where God breaks through and gives it to you. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, our, our culture, our life, the thing that we're involved in here is not, uh, is not manufacturing joy wholesale. This is something that it is found in work. You know, it's found in responsibility. It's found in facing the truth. You know, it's it's found in, in actually caring about other people. I think that's the thing I was looking for all along, you know, is that joy. You don't ever think, you know, that you're going to get it by telling somebody all of your lies. You know, you don't think you're going to get it by sitting on a chair for, you know, 25 minutes every morning or something. You know, you just, you, you're not seeing that until it actually happens to you. There will be people listening to this who are on the fence, either in denial about their own weakness in their own life, their own addictions, uh, whether it be a spouse of somebody who is uh, debating on what to do next because their their loved one is a mess, of, you know, a parent of, of a child going through these difficult things. What advice would you give that person who's listening as far as getting into a recovery meeting or getting help anywhere, how would you guide somebody in that situation? I guess what I would say is that um, I would say to go to God where you're at. And I think that that's a thing that is um, a lot of times people intellectually are barred from that action because they think that they have to clean themselves up first or they have to prepare themselves for it. You know, go to God, go to the program where you're at now. Um, don't worry about anything that would postpone that, you know. When you look at at the program itself, I mean, this whole thing came in because uh, somebody cried out for help to God, you know. 
and the answer that person got was was greater than for themselves you know it it spilled out into all these fellowships and and uh, millions of people you know and it's it's there uh, I think the first place you usually come in contact with it is when you meet someone who is like you and is now sane and and has joy and has meaning in their life. And, um, you know, I think the first thing a person should do is, you know, any kind of thing that's barring them from making contact with that, with a person like that, just to pers- persevere through. And uh, that's essentially it. You know, I I love what you said there, connecting with somebody who um, was in the same or very similar predicament that you now find yourself in, who now has joy and some fulfillment and healing in their lives. And I think that uh, so often, and and I've I've experienced this myself, and I see it in so many other people. We're afraid to walk through those doors for the first time. What if somebody I know sees me? they're going to judge me, you know, but that is honestly about the only place I'm ever going to find somebody who has, who walks my same footsteps, who is wanting to change yeah. and is actually doing something about it. It's powerful. It's a culture. You know, a culture is an environment where weak things uh, can grow in no other place. I happen to be a farmer, so I'm around things uh-huh. like we make our own apple cider vinegar. And, uh-huh. you know, you get something like yogurt. There's a culture. There's a living thing that's in there. It's alive. And the environment has to be just right. And if you don't put yourself into that environment, you'll never get in contact with what is alive. You know, you, you need that. That's essential. Mm. That's the only place you're going to thrive. And you uh-huh. got to like, be willing to make those sacrifices to go through a door. And it's totally worth it, right? Absolutely, it's worth it. Because if you don't get culture and yogurt, you just get glop. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis makes this reference. It's like an egg. You know, it has two possibilities. It's, it either will hatch or go rotten, mm. you know, and that's essentially what we're up against. You know, it, it's inescapable. You have to go forward. Uh, either you lose your old life or you lose the one you got now, you mm. know. Awesome. Matt, that's, this has been really good. I really appreciate the, you taking the time out to talk about these important things that I think will help Well, it's helping me. And if nobody else, that's good, but uh, I think it'll help a lot of other people. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a, a pleasure. So there you have it. Step 11 sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. If you felt or, mo- or were motivated to take some steps in your own life to make some changes, I invite you, as Matt did, to enter a room and start on that path. Life really is so much better in recovery and really with more conscious contact with God. Now, for the housekeeping part of this program... Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Also check us out on our website, www.jtlpod.com. And if you would like to share your own experiences, strength, and hope, please drop me a line at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. 
Also to support us, um, I purposely have not been putting our sponsors at the beginning of these podcasts. I find that uh, the topic is such that I want to get into the meaning of it right away. But your support at our sponsors is really, really helpful to us to be able to keep doing this service and this in this show that I really feel strongly about. So our, our uh, sponsors are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. When you visit us or when you visit alifeuntold.com, use promo code Justin at checkout to save 10% on your order. And JTLPod5 at both Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. Those products and services are really fantastic. I really support them. I endorse them. I use them. And I'm really grateful for everybody else who has been um, visiting and using those promo codes to, to support us. Now, these conversations that I have recorded in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me. And I, as as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning, and I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. And I hope you are too. Have a great week and press forward one day at a time. Mm-hmm.